are back. Mm. Uh, we missed last week uh, post Oscars because it was we delayed uh, because of the Oscars, and then uh, I had film week, and you had a writing assignment, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the week just ran away from us. So um, we can weigh in now on the Academy Awards. Did you count up your predictions? How many you got right? Did you do that? Uh, it was easy. I didn't get anything right. <laughs> Um, uh, although the thing that I got wrong, the biggest, uh, is, is, you know, one of the movies we're going to be talking about now, and I, you know, the best picture. Yeah. I got that the wrongest. Yeah, but I got that right. But you got that dead right. Yeah. And uh, for all green, the reasons Green Book. We're talking about Green Book. Yeah. I don't know why we're being yeah. coy. And, uh, I got 14 out of the 24. I got 10 wrong, which is the worst I've done in a while. I usually, I usually lodge in around uh, 18, 19. I usually miss about five or six. Yeah. Seven sometimes. Uh, but I did really poorly this year by my usual standards. Uh, but it was a crazy year. It was a I, wacky look, year. I, 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 I figured Regina King would win. She yeah, did. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I figured if it weren't one of the movies with the word black in the title, actually, what yeah. I thought was going to win, uh, might win, is Roma. Yeah. And then I thought, if that, Roma's not going to win, I'm thinking um, Stars Born. Yeah. And I'm thinking, if Stars Born's not going to win, now you get to the movies yeah. with the word black in the title, maybe yeah. Black Panther. <laughs> uh, didn't really think Spike Lee's Black Klansman really had a chance, but I certainly thought it would be more likely yeah. than the actual winner, yeah. which was Green Book, and there it is. Not yep. without some controversy. And <laughs> Spike's quote was actually quite funny. I, he, he shouldn't take these things that personally, but he does. That's why. That's why he is. But but he said uh, every every time somebody's driving somebody, we lose. <laughs> that's that just funny. funny. The, the thing of it is, all, all of that uh, spike shenanigans. Yeah. yeah. If any one of those other movies I just mentioned yeah. won, yeah, Roma, uh, whatever, then I don't think that it, that was the only movie that could prompt him to those. Of course to, it to was. The, the shenanigans. Of it was. So it wasn't that he didn't win. It's what's that that we movie go again. won. Yeah. 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 Well, so we're gonna we're gonna dive right into it. We're starting off. We're gonna cover all the uh, the 4K titles this week, and uh, aptly timed. Green Book is out on 4K this week. Uh, does it really need to be 4K? You know, they're all judiciously choosing their 4K movies these days because it is a limited format, and there's mm. not a lot. And Samsung has now exited the hardware. Uh, you know, they, they, there are no more Samsung 4K players. Uh, they just decided they can't compete with Sony and uh, and the rest. And mm. Oppo, you know manufactured the best 4K deck that there's ever been and then exited the business. So mm -hmm. it is getting very boutique and niche -y, and that, that'll invariably change at some point. But for the time being, people are being really choosy about the movies that they, they invest uh, in a 4K release for. And Green Book really is on 4K for only one reason. They really thought they were going to win yeah. Best Picture. Yeah, and, and they, they did. did. Yeah, uh, Because what's not on 4K this week is the movie that I would have given Best Picture the to. The Favorite, yeah. The Favorite. Mm, yeah. So I would love to have The Favorite on 4K because it's amazing low-light photography, and uh, it was actually nominated for cinematography. Mm -hmm. You know what was not nominated for cinematography? Green Book. <laughs> and interesting that um, uh, Roma won that, uh, yeah. and uh, Alfonso, who shot it himself, yeah. that was his first time acting as that his own is, DP, right? Yes. Usually and he's Matthew... Uh, uh, no, he's with uh, Chivo. Chivo, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, uh, Emmanuel Lubetsky. And uh, Lubetsky is, you know, doing uh, doing his own stuff now and wants to direct, apparently. Uh, by the way, my brother-in-law, who's doing a lot more stuff, uh, he's doing a lot of gigs as a photographer. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, he's, getting, uh, he's getting a lot of work doing uh, the still shoots on commercials. Mm -hmm. And if you saw the Super Bowl spot with Jeremy Renner, the Dodge Ram thing with the girl in the back seat. So he worked that shoot oh. as a still photographer. He was doing all the stills for the print, for the print uh, ads on that. 
and uh, that was shot by Lubetsky. Oh, so there. Yeah. All right. Yeah. See? Yeah. So yeah. he had yeah. a he had a, he was as as he was saying to us, he said, "I can't believe I'm shooting stills by Lubetsky's lighting." <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty exciting. So anyway, uh, but yeah, Green Book. So you know, here's the thing. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? I mean, I think you know our colleague Justin wrote a well. First off. Uh, look, it's perfectly fine 4K. I don't know that this thing was mastered in 4K. It looks like it. It really looks like they took a 2K master and, and bumped it up it, and yeah. up and upresed it. Uh, it's it's not gonna light your your four. It's not. Let's put it this way: if you put your 4K Green Book in and you invite the friends over, they're gonna look at it and they're gonna go, "Looks like Blu-ray to me." Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't look that much better. And nothing in Green Book requires nothing. Nothing about that. Yeah, hey, everything yeah, looks looks can good. You, can you believe? A Farrelly brother just mm. won an Academy Award. It, uh, the, the, <laughs> Kentucky, the, the, these are the Kentucky Fried Movie people of forty. What forty years ago? That's like what the early mid seventies. Well, no, no. It, it well, the, 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 what about Mary? Oh something, yeah, something about, about Mary. The, yeah. the family brothers are also Kentucky Fried. No, or those are Zuckers. That's the Zaz. That's the, the Zuckers. Those are the Zuckers. I confused. Yeah. I confused yeah. my yeah. brothers. Yeah. Therefore, yes, yeah, something about Mary yeah. and all of that. Those yeah. are the Farrellys. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what was the one where uh, where uh, with, with the with the fat suit? Oh, um, uh, Shallow Howl. Shallow Howl, yeah. that's right. Which is actually the one I like. When it's See, yeah. I kind of, I, I don't like myself for liking it, but I do kind of like it. I like what it's about, Yeah, Shallow Howl. Yeah. That movie's a little bit deeper than it looks like on, on the surface. So here's the thing about the movie generally. Uh, I think Tim and I are both on the same page, which is that we agree with our colleague John Powers, who said this is the most <laughs> daring movie of 1965. Uh, and, you know, this is basically a Sidney Poitier movie from 1965 in 2019. It's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yeah. Some, yeah and, 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 but except that, that was 1967, maybe, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this movie could live in 65 or 67, or for that matter, in 89. Uh, when Driving Miss Daisy came out, because it's effectively Driving Miss Daisy. And even that is a solid 30 years ago, yet uh, uh, that very particular sensibility has not changed in Hollywood, and Hollywood is still a little tone deaf about it. My, my biggest problems with this are that it is, yes, it's totally formulaic. It feels completely of another period. I don't have a problem with a movie about you know the, the you know the, the civil rights era, the white guy and the black guy getting along, and you know the 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 usual mismatched buddy thing. I understand you, you understand me. I mean that's Lethal Weapon did that, and we've we've been doing that for decades. the The bigger issues for me are Vigo overacts like a crazy man. <laughs> you know he's doing a complete stereotype pastiche of, and this is and this is this is part of the problem. Vigo is trying too hard. To act like a stereotypical Italian, mm. and Mahershala is trying too hard to out Poitier, 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 Poitier. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. to be even more regal, even more noble. If he sat any more erect in that back seat, uh, I, I'm like, you really, you, you're not going to even lean over at all. It's, it's it's this it's this scene. They even have a still on the back when he when he says about the poem, oh, "Take yeah. this down," and he sits there and he it's like he has a rail <laughs> stapled yeah. to his spine. You know, I, I get what they were going for. It's all very, very contrived. And the thing is, I, I love Don Shirley's music. Yeah. I, I grew up with a lot of Don Shirley's music. And this is, I, you know, this is, I, I, with all due respect to Harry Belafonte, who knew Don Shirley, mm -hmm. I kind of side with Don Shirley's family on this. This, is, this has nothing to do with Don Shirley. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. 
you know, Don Shirley was a Jamaican immigrant. He was a, a musical prodigy at, at an early age. His he mother. Was, he was versed in all of these kinds. Of, the, the, the music that uh, the Beagle's character uh, introduces him to in the yeah. South, Don yeah. Shirley was yeah. well versed in all of that music. In all of that. From the t- he trained with the very best music teachers from the time he was like five years old. Yeah. You know, his mother did like all of those those musical prodigy stage mothers do, which is she sacrificed and bent over backwards to get him all the best teachers and, and to get him exposed. And, you know, it's really in a remarkable life that is, is not well served by the movie. However, my biggest problem with this, independent of all these other issues, is the way that it ends. Yeah. Now, I'm sorry if you haven't seen it. This is a little bit of a spoiler. Maybe not. It's, it's so plain strange off. in automobiles. It's plain strange in automobiles. It's, you basically have an Italian uh, Steve Martin invite, inviting a black John Candy home for Thanksgiving. Yeah. It's the same it's ending. The... So I thought, well, maybe I can take some solace in this that uh, John Hughes finally won an Oscar kind of <laughs> vicariously. Uh, anyway, look, I don't think it's a terrible film, but I also don't think it's a good film. Um, but well, it is now an Academy Award winner. And, and, and that's the thing about it, right? If, if this had just been some film that came out, uh, and played and went away, and uh, I wouldn't have thought about it three times. Yeah. But the fact that people started treating it like it was, it, and then um, it did, in fact, win the Oscar. It just—I don't know. It's just a—it's just—it's just, it's just an odd moment. Yeah. It's just an odd moment. Well, we talked about this last week, but they also sent us a, a 4K of Bohemian Rhapsody, mm. which, as of the Oscars, uh, was the biggest winner of the night. Yeah, number. This, number. this has become a thing now that the Best Picture is not the winner of the most awards. You know, it, uh, mm-hmm. it happened with you know, Gravity was the most award winner, didn't win Best Picture. Uh, Mad Max won uh, most awards, didn't win Best Picture. Mm-hmm. So this is, a, this is kind of a trend now in the era of the preferential ballot and up to 10 nominees. And so Bohemian Rhapsody won four awards. That was, you know, not amazing. Four mm-hmm. is the most any film won, and then a bunch won three. Mm-hmm. But uh, nobody won more than four. And the no, only no, film... no, no, tens and twelves. And... No, no, that's not happening no, anymore. No more of that. So uh, Bohemian Rhapsody got four. Now, this is another movie that has all kinds of issues with its biopic uh, accuracy. Mm-hmm. Not to mention uh, the, 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 the singer. I yeah, yeah. Well, that, and nobody said, no, no, no one even see, mentioned his name. Now, I enjoy this movie. I do. I enjoy this movie. I know that it is an utter uh, whitewash of the actual history. I totally acknowledge that, uh, that it's, you know, it's, it manipulates things and it distorts and it... It eases up, and I get it. All the complaints are valid. Mm-hmm. But you load a bunch of Queen songs in a movie like this, <laughs> and you cut it like, and you put a Rami Malek performance in it. I'm good. I'm I'm enjoying it. I recognize its flaws, but I enjoyed it. So it's fun. It a- it's still ridiculous that it was nominated for Best Picture. It is indeed. But here's the thing: Brian Singer, um, as Tim noted, was not mentioned in a single acceptance speech. We all know why. If you yeah. read the Atlantic piece yeah. that that Harvey Weinstein did. It's pretty grotesque, yeah. Uh, and there's there's no coming back from that. The uh, you know he was set to direct Red Sonia as his next film for uh, Millennium that ended about a week and a half ago. Mm-hmm. So it looks as though, barring any kind of miracle, and Brian Singer is not the kind of person who's going to do a you know a, a tell all Mia culpa on sixty minutes or or with you know Barbara Walters. That's not that's never going to happen. So uh, it looks like, for all intents and purposes, Brian Singer's career directing movies is likely over. Mm. Now, in America, got, anyway. In America, at least, yeah. Now, it, it, he, may, he may get some work directing commercials and things where you know no one knows who's doing it, whatever that case might be. 
Um, but yeah, and and you know what? He's got a pile of money. Yeah, he's got a lot of money. It is funny that of all the guys um, who uh, you know have been called out for various such bad behavior, yeah. that the one whose career really, really, really seems to have been ended is is Brian Singer. Yeah, and that a he's gay. I mean, yeah. Kevin Spacey's uh, perhaps too. Yeah, I could, maybe you can even throw him in that desk because it doesn't seem like Kevin's coming back either. Yeah, it is interesting to me that the the, the, the two big ones are gay. Yeah, uh, and and uh, yeah, I just wouldn't have thunk that. You know, yeah. I would have thought it would have been you know sort of obviously Harvey. You got Harvey, you got Woody, and and there are others that will will tumble. Mm. You know, in in the coming years, I my concern. You know, I. I, I, I am less concerned with uh, nailing the offenders at this point than I, uh, uh, you know, justice will be done eventually, but I'm more concerned going forward. Mm. I'm more concerned that the business change in ways that that prevent these things from even becoming a possibility exactly. anymore. That, exactly. I'm looking down the line, you know, I've got a kid I, yeah. I, I, who may wind up in this business. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, well, same thing, you know, we have uh, friends and you yeah. know, young actresses yeah. that we work with and I, you don't want them to go through it. Yeah, and I, yeah. and she went through a lot of that and I, I do not want uh, these uh, to ever have to deal with any of that again. So in any case, uh, there's a, there's there's a fair amount on all of these in terms of extras, but uh, for both Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody, it's it's not, you know, it's it's not that substantial. They threw these things together pretty quickly. The uh, the one thing that Bohemian Rhapsody does have, which is really great, is the complete live aid performance uh, that was uh, not seen in theaters, mm-hmm. and then uh, obviously some some featurette stuff. But uh, Bohemian Rhapsody definitely benefits from the 4K. This is the Fox HDR format, which is HDR 10 plus, as opposed to Dolby Vision. And if you're not keeping track, you got to have a your your player and if your uh, and your receiver, if you're running your signal through the receiver, have to be compatible with that format. Mm-hmm. And you do need to have 4K compatible uh, HDMI cables because it's a higher it's a higher Data, data rate. Data rate, yeah. So, you know, you have to make sure that every single link in the chain in your system is 4K compatible. Or you'll get a bottleneck. Or you'll get a bottleneck. And you got to make sure that it handles the HDR format that you're talking about. Now, they recently had a firmware upgrade for the Oppos, which are now discontinued, that enables them to handle all of these different HDR formats. Um, but ultimately, it is you're talking about a thing like Dolby Digital and DTS on the audio end, where now everything has... Uh, everything has to be able to handle both of those. Mm-hmm. Notice all the players, all the receivers are DTS and Dolby capable. Mm-hmm. Now we're into the same thing with HDR. You got to be able to handle HDR 10 plus from the Fox end, which is freaking gorgeous, by the way. I think I like it better than Dolby Vision. Mm. And Dolby Vision, obviously, which is a standard in in uh, theatrical formats as well. So in any case, that's something to pay attention to. We're going to be doing uh, some, uh, some, some stuff on 4K on the City God site which has been in the works for a very long time and uh, taking our time with it. So that's um, that's going to get into a little bit of that as well. So going quickly through the rest of the 4Ks, uh, we got Ralph Breaks the Internet, mm. which, you know, whatever. I'm It got an Oscar nomination because, it, because it's there. Um, and uh, it's got uh, mostly the bonuses are on the Blu-ray, which includes deleted scenes and Easter eggs and a few other things. I don't really get the, the Ralph movies. They don't make a whole lot of sense to me. But yeah. I know, I know. Some people really love the whole thing, so fair enough. The first uh, one was okay. That one was just uh, too yeah. kinetic and just cranking and cranking and cranking. It was irritating. Was mostly what it was. I am really annoyed that Universal released Mary Queen of Scots on 4K, but we don't get the favorite on 4K. Mm. 
Makes no sense. It makes no sense. That one got the nomination. They thought that one was going to get a nomination. Yeah, this, but, you know. this didn't make That's money. That's the one with Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie, by the way. This didn't make money. No. This didn't win any Academy Awards. Yet still the 4K. And this gets a 4K and the favorite mm. does not. I don't mm. understand it. This is not that well photographed. The favorite is. What's going on here? Mm. Um, so, yeah, look, Mary Queen of Scots, I really hate this movie. Uh, it, this tries to do – what this tries to do is – take a sort of revisionist, almost uh, anachronistic approach to the history of Queen Elizabeth and her her cousin Mary, Queen of Scots. And uh, this was supposed to have been done decades ago with Meryl Streep and Glenn Close in the parts. I think Meryl Streep was supposed to play Mary, Queen of Scots. Mm. Glenn Close was supposed to play uh, Elizabeth. Mm. That was the original plan. That would have been a hell of a movie. Mm. Uh, this, very different movie. Very different movie. This just doesn't really work. They play it straight for the most part, but then they start doing weird things like casting, uh, casting certain parts with people uh, who are not white. Yeah. You know, like like there's uh, the the uh, the the prime minister here is played by a black actor. Yeah. English. Her her lady in waiting is played by an Asian actress. You know, and and if you're if you're doing kind of a, a an overtly Julie Taymor kind of take sure. on this yeah go but, with harry lennox as, uh, but, yeah. but that's not what's going on but, here this but, one you're trying they're, they're walking they're trying to walk a line that's it and uh and no if you're gonna first of all they just flat out make up crap in that movie that's the thing these two women never never met, met. and they just so so you're just making stuff up here and they also take a character that was patently not gay her husband mary queen of scots's husband who was a a, a blazing philanderer mm. and they invent this completely preposterous uh, conspiracy here where he he's allegedly gay and there's all this stuff and it's it's a total fabrication there's no evidence mm. to it mm. as opposed to the favorite which we will talk about in a moment yeah uh then uh, last two 4k's here creed 2 what do you think of creed 2 yeah look not as good as creed uh no. but a but a but a fairly decent movie that i rather enjoyed uh, i yeah. like the love story in the movie the but the, the the whole boxing stuff was not particularly memorable i was surprised that it was not terrible yeah. It was it was adequate. I don't think Creed needed an, a, a Creed two. I didn't I didn't think we needed to keep going there. But um, and I'm getting a little tired of Stall- Stallone playing Rocky. Yeah. He's gonna play Rambo again. Yeah, yeah. he's like seventy years old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> after a while, dude, the because uh, he, he's had a lot of work. But after a while, uh, there's nothing left to work with. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. Anyway. And, 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 you know, Rocky at this age, is he really still going to be wearing the same hat that he wore in 1975, <laughs> 76? Yeah, yeah. Come on. Michael no. B. Jordan, his best performance last year was in Black Panther, of course, not in that. That's yeah, Honest question. Uh-huh. Honest question. Does Michael B. Jordan maintain that body when uh-huh. he's not working? <laughs> I just don't. It's insane. Look, you, I'm impressed because at least he used it for two movies. He did. Yes. He used it for that, and he and used for it Black as, Panther. for Black Panther. So yeah. at least he had a reason. Yeah. Uh, but dude, uh, unless you're unless you're gonna put me in, uh, that is insane. What uh, he's done there. It's. Not, I mean, he 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 he. Whoever the trainer is that gave him that body, kudos to you, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is. And God he, knows he hasn't had a starch or a carbohydrate in years. Yeah. That's for sure. The uh, in any case, the thing that's a little bit silly here is that we bring back uh, we bring back Dolph Lundgren and Drago's son, yeah. and you know, there's a whole like this ties into Rocky Four basically. This yeah. is this is sort of not just Creed Two, but it's like Rocky Four Point Two, and uh, or Four Point Five or what you know. It's it's a it, it does that, and it's I don't know if we need to keep going back to that well, but I was glad to see Dolph Lundgren in a in a major movie again. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he walked around a couple of those Expendables, if I'm not mistaken. Did yeah. he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And then we've got uh, the Little Mermaid Anniversary Edition on 4K uh, with sing-alongs. And you know what? This is the first of the Disney animated classics that's winding up on 4K, and I could not be more elated. The extras are all on um, uh, the Blu-ray, which includes you know sing-along mode and uh, and little featurettes and things. It's not really what it's about. It's about seeing the Little Mermaid in 4K, and boy, is it spectacular! Mm. Disney really pulled out the stops for this one. This is a uh, and, and I'm glad I got this because my Blu-ray of this is just about dead <laughs> from from, from, from my from daughter. Use, yeah. yeah, from my daughter. My daughter. This was the first film she ever saw. She has seen it at least eighteen thousand times. And uh, it is it is uh, it, it's it's well used in our house. So this is <laughs> this comes at a good time. And of course, whenever we're at Disneyland, we have to go on the Little Mermaid ride, and uh, that's a that's a very special thing. So uh, yeah, the Little Mermaid in 4K is definitely the 4K of the week. It is beautiful. It sounds spectacular. Uh, it is absolutely wonderful. And of course, you get the. Uh, the movies anywhere code on it, so you can take it with you wherever, and it it's just really really tremendous. It's uh it, it's really top notch. So, the other thing is that they are also very very good here is that uh, they they explain, as many people do need to have explained that you do need to have uh all of the gear, the the player and the television and the whole thing. It is uh, unfortunately a trend that a lot of people are buying. 4K Ultra HDs, thinking that they can just watch it on their regular HD set. Yeah. And it's not so. Not so. Got to have all the, do- the doohickeys. All of them. Well, the, the, we, we have the favorite here. Again, not yep. 4K. They yeah. didn't do that in 4K. But, you know, the Academy Award nominated, uh, but not particularly. Well, Olivia Coleman. That was a surprise. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because you remember at our Film Week show, I said this feels a lot like the best actor of 1982 mm-hmm. when it was Paul Newman, Paul Newman's due, Paul Newman's due, Paul Newman's due. Oh, yeah, who's that Ben Kingsley guy, that upstart Brit? Yeah. Ben Kingsley wound up winning. And this felt I, – I, I said it then. I This feels a little bit like that. Yeah. And, I, and I didn't I didn't go with my gut on that and pick Olivia Coleman. I went with Glenn Close because that was the buzz. And it, and it had been happening all it, across it been happening, the season. Yeah, but yeah. you know what? Um, the thing and the, and the thing about 1982 is that that also had Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie in the mm-hmm. mix. You know, mm-hmm. so there was a third option too to possibly split that vote. But uh, yeah, sure enough, Olivia Coleman got it, and what a fun acceptance speech it was! It 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 really was, and and Glenn took it well. She still hasn't. She's nominated what three times? Oh no, Glenn Glenn's been nominated like seven times. Seven times, it's ridiculous. She's yeah. the most nominated actress not to win an award. Well, now. you know, the, the misfortune of, of of Glenn's life is that she happens to have been a contemporary of Meryl Streep. That's it, and that's the yep. only reason. That's yep. that's the, you know the, the, all of those Oscars that she was getting nominated However, for her prime. Meryl Meryl was. Knocking off most of those. However, they just cast a director for the uh, state for the screen adaptation of the uh, Sunset Boulevard musical. Ah, a uh, some Broadway choreographer who's never directed a movie before, which is never a thrilling thing for me. But it, it's you know it's happened that they've done it many times before, and it usually works out. Surround the guy with enough good people, it'll be fine. But Glenn will probably win an Oscar for that because you're playing a, an actress. Past her prime, right? The, the whole Swanson and and, and yeah, and, uh, yeah. exactly. Yeah. There's a whole, there's a whole, you know, there are 50 million reasons that that's a really cute movie to give her an award for. It's all, it's it's all, it's meta again, you know, in, in in that particular kind of way. I don't suppose uh, Meryl would have been interested in that part, you know. Well, uh, Glenn Close played it on stage. She did, yeah, and and even in here in L.A., she mm-hmm. came to L.A. and played it on stage. So. Mm. 
It will be it maybe will be another shot. Maybe yeah. another shot. Anyway, uh, 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 the, the, the uh, ten Academy Awards for the favorite uh, out on Blu-ray and digital DVD. All kinds of neat stuff on there. Some deleted scenes and whatnot. This was a good movie. Basically, the it. movie's uh, sort of an imagining of uh, of, of the, the reign of Queen Anne, her 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 favorite uh, uh, a cousin, uh, and then the arrival of a new cousin, a yeah. servant, yeah. and how they vie for her attention. It is. Uh, it's basically a female Barry Lyndon, shot in the style of Tom Jones, with shades of uh, Dangerous Liaisons mm-hmm. and uh, you know a few other things. It, it, it just. It. I love this movie. I love everything about it. It's crazy. It's wacky. It's funny. It's. It's eccentric in all the right ways. And here's the thing I love about it that Mary Queen of Scots didn't do, which is it gets the history right. Yeah, it does. Um, I mean, yes, a lot of the the sexual politics of this are speculative, mm-hmm. but when you have every historian at every major institution speculating the same thing for several hundred years, probably it's, true. It's probably true. It's probably true. Uh, Melissa McCarthy, um, can you can you ever forgive me? This was a, this was an interesting little movie. Um, and a, and, a, and a good performance for her, yeah. Because she wasn't doing the thing that she usually does, which leans on a, that particular kind of humor that she engages engages in those movies that she does with her husband. Um, here, she had to sort of channel that Lee Israel mm-hmm. thing, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and 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 play this role. And I thought she did a pretty daggum good job of it. Um, this was not my favorite movie. I love the dialogue, obviously, the writing of the movie. Uh, uh, so you you know I don't know um, uh, what did you think about this one? Uh, I like this movie quite a bit. I'm I'm glad that Nicole Holofcener got an Oscar nomination finally, Jeff even Whitty, even, yeah. even as a, a co-screenwriter. Yeah, uh, I'd like to see her get some nominations for her own movies, but but as a for, you know her writing work on this uh, as a writer for hire is really sharp. Here's the thing: I, if I if I'm looking openly and objectively at all of the best original screenplay nominees, uh, this would have been the, the, my choice of the best of them. Mm. But Black Klansman is pretty damn good mm. as well, is more important in terms of what it tries to do. Adapted screenplays. I, I, adapt, uh, sorry, adapted screenplays, yes. Is, is, is more significant in terms of what it's do, the, the, the source material it's working with. Mm. You know, here you're not having to sort of wrestle with the source material in any great way. Yeah. Um, with Black Klansman, there was a lot of work to do, and that had gone through some other hands before. So I, 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 I've totally endorsed the, the Black Klansman win, and Spike is, is as due as anybody. But um, what's disappointing to me about this is that it's only on DVD and not on Blu-ray. And not on Blu-ray, yeah. And that's very disappointing. For a movie that really was acclaimed, that was Oscar-nominated, that is incredibly well-directed uh, and, and well-acted and you know all the rest of it, uh, really a sharp film, could easily have gotten a Best Picture nomination. Yeah. Um, not putting it on Blu-ray is is pretty sad. Yeah, I so, just didn't think there was anything in it uh, that particularly called for uh, that much Christmas. But you know, I mean, it's, it's a movie mostly set in an apartment. Thing is, all of these things now have four uh, have uh, not four K, but they have HD digital streams. So if mm. you buy this on Vudu or if it's you gonna... buy it on Google Movies or whatever, it's going to be two K. It's mm. going to be HD. Why not? Just, Why not just go ahead and just, do it? Just give me a Blu-ray. Yeah, in the first place. It's, yeah, and probably skip this. Uh, deleted scenes, commentary from the director, uh, uh, Muriel Heller, and and Melissa McCarthy, and some galleries and stuff. And, you know, they're kind of neat. Kind of. Mary, Muriel Heller is the real deal, man. She's yeah. you know she's doing the uh, the Mr. Rogers movie now with uh, Tom Hanks. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep stepping it yeah, up. Yeah, it's great. Good for the ladies. We've got Between Worlds starring Nicolas Cage, and what a Nicolas Cage movie this is. Yo, it has boy. the great tagline of Vengeance is born in hell. And Nick Cage is like walking out of flames and looks like some kind of sequel to Ghost Rider. And uh, you know what? 
this thing is completely bonkers. It's totally bananas. It's even more bananas than that last thing that he did. The, oh, the, uh, uh, Mandy. Yeah, even more bonkers than Mandy. Yeah. Uh, which is incredible. Uh, it's kind of the same, you know. He's he's a guy who's who's his like his his family was killed, and so he's got that death wish kind of thing going on. And uh, then it takes this weird turn into spiritualism. He meets this woman, and you know her her daughter's in a coma, and there's a and then there's a whole like spirit world thing going on, and then it just gets bizarrely meta, mm. and um. It really ultimately makes no sense. It's totally bonkers, and uh, I guess it, it, it. This is like if you took Mandy and you crossed it with Constantine mm. and kept Nick Cage in from Mandy. <laughs> That's what this is. It's really, really off the wall. I don't know if I, it, I'd recommend it to anybody, but if you like Mandy, you'll probably enjoy this. Uh, it comes with a, uh, a digital copy, and that means voodoo at this point. Uh, it's from Lionsgate, and it's on Blu-ray. Uh, ben is back. I think was the movie most, uh, at least the filmmakers who made the movie thought we would have been talking about uh, yeah. this past award season. Uh, Lucas Hedges and Julia Roberts in the movie about a young. Same, it's uh, it's kind of the same movie as Beautiful Boy. It's, it's literally the same movie as yeah. Beautiful Boy, which was uh, so Timothy was Chalamet and, and uh, who was Timothy Chalamet and um, Steve Carell. And Steve Carell and this yeah. And so, so you just swap Steve Carell out and you swap. Julia Roberts in, and uh, it's, yeah. it's basically the same movie. Yeah, Lucas Hitches, Manchester by the Sea, got his uh, Academy Award. Sure. Uh, so, you know, uh, nice to see these young men working. It's perfectly, perfectly, uh, you know, perfectly fine drama that uh, I didn't find particularly captivating. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I hate to say this because it's really callous, but I'm, I'm incredibly over the, the cautionary addiction torn, uh, busted up family movies. Yeah. I, because, and not because it isn't an important subject, but because they all do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it kind of plays out the way it plays out. Uh, special features audio commentary with the director Peter Hedges, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Stand off at Sparrow Creek. Yeah, actually, a pretty neat uh, little thriller uh, about this uh, ex-cop who joined the militia, and then the, 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 there's a there's a, m a murder of a bunch of cops at a cop funeral, actually. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and he goes back into his old militia and 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 and, and, and traps these guys and going to try to figure out who did who pulled off this. This hit at this police funeral before the whole thing sort of gets out of gets out of hand. It's actually a pretty good thriller, uh, sort of keep you guessing thriller, uh, with some good performances in it. And uh, I kind of dug it. Not much on here by way of special features. Nevertheless, just a good movie. Standoff at Sparrow Creek. So we've got boy, is this quite a movie? Uh, London Fields. So London Fields has it stars Amber Heard, who of course is a you know was was most recently the Mrs. Johnny Depp, and then a mm. horrible horrible divorce, and now there's you know Johnny she's Depp. Running, she ran around that Aquaman movie. That's the best thing that happened to her. Yeah, true. But there, but there's also the uh, there 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 also um, was Johnny Depp is now claiming that she had an affair with Elon Musk. And yeah, it's just yeah. you know anyway, Amber Heard is really kind of blown up in not such a great way. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. uh, London Fields, which is only on DVD, not on Blu-ray. Is an incredibly. Um, I don't want to say that it's a good movie. It's not a good movie, but it's a fascinating failure, and it has an amazing history behind it. If you don't know, this is essentially about a. Um, uh, this is about a. Oh boy, how do we even get into this? So there was a no, the not. It's based on a novel. It's based on a novel by Martin Amis, which was a, a huge thing many many years ago. And they've tried to turn this into a movie many times. This has been develop in development forever. I don't know why it just it never got out of the blocks. But 
it finally got made and shot with Amber Heard and Billy Bob Thornton. Mm. And then there was a lawsuit by the director against the producers that can't that, that bottled this thing up for a few years. It's just the most troubled production imaginable. And so when it comes to the screen and it winds up being this really weird uh, almost surreal, noirish thriller that doesn't really go where you think it's going to go, and it takes all these bizarre existential twists and turns that don't really make much sense, and you know the story threads don't go anywhere, and um, it, you have to kind of wonder where did it go wrong, and why are people filing lawsuits over this thing? It was never going to make any money, mm-hmm. but it is if you to, if you research the history of this project and you look at the movie, it's really kind of bizarre and fascinating uh, what came out of it. The it it is uh, it in some sense tries to be sort of a vertigo like study of obsession. Billy Bob Thornton is this uh, this this author who's you know dying and and he meets uh, this mysterious woman who keeps having premonitions about her her uh, her own death and then it kind of leads into this very strange capery direction and it reminded me somewhat. It's a little bit like Vertigo meets um, oh what was the I'm drawing a blank on it. The uh, that crazy thriller mm. directed by the uh, the son of the, the the other Rat Pack guy that we never talk about. Oh, um, 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 Joey, 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 uh, yeah, Joey, Joey Bishop's, Bishop's boy. Son. Um, yeah. directed a bunch of yeah. b- b- nutty movies. Yeah. So uh, anyway, yeah. J- oh, what, what was that? Uh, oh, see, I'm, I'm, I'm it just, I'm, it just I'm came out. It just came out on Blu-ray not too long ago, and uh, now I'm drawing a blank on the name of it. Um, Richard Dreyfuss was in it and a whole bunch of other people. Anyway, uh, that thing was like a gangster saga that took place on another planet, you know? Yeah. And it was like, what? Where's where that? Where'd that come from? Uh, and this this has that otherworldly feel to it. And, you know, it's got uh, just got it just doesn't feel like it takes place in this reality. So anyway, I've said far more about London Fields than it probably warrants, but <laughs> it's it, it really is a curious film and an interesting failure. So if you have some time, you could do worse. I, it's not a good movie, but it's just a fascinating movie, and it's odd that those things can can go. Larry Bishop was... Uh, Larry Bishop, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, what, was, what was that movie? Um, yeah, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're going we're gonna to pull it up here. Uh, Larry Bishop. Larry Bishop directed Mad Dog Time from 1996. Yes, That's yes, it. Yes, this yes. feels like Mad Dog Time meets Vertigo. There it is. So anyway, uh, 100 yards. 100 yards is a uh, is a is, is a you know this is one of those uh, very decent kind of faith based films that doesn't quite go all the way in that direction and pulls it back a little bit to try to be a little bit more mainstream so it doesn't feel like it's a it's a sermon. And um, does a pretty good job of it, to be honest. Uh, yeah, seen Sean Patrick Flannery in a while. Yeah, Sean Patrick Flannery. It's nice to see him again. Uh, co-stars uh, Stephen Brewis and Rebecca Lim. Most of these movies, you know, about redemption usually have to do with some athlete and their, their struggles. And uh, this is about a guy who, you know, had a great uh, football future, and then tragedy takes him out of it. And uh, then, the, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, there, there's, the, there's a whole, there are all the usual complications and uh, progressive uh, issues that uh, plague his life uh, without giving anything too far away. And then, of course, he finds the, the path back that, you know, helps him through uh, to find a way back to redemption and to find meaning in life. It's the, it's the usual trajectory of these movies, but it is quite well done. Uh, this has two directors, Ross Campbell and Dale Fabregar, mm. and they do a very, very good job. It's it's uh, it's nicely put together. It really is, and for probably not a whole lot of money. So, uh, and again, nice to see John, uh, Sean Patrick Flannery again. 
Uh, I remember talking about this movie here uh, on the show, on Film Week, uh, Sergeant Will Gardner, a film by Max Martini. Max Martini is an actor who you know very well. <coughs> Excuse me, red-headed actor. I think it, on one of the NCISs, maybe yeah. NCIS Los Angeles. Uh, it's just one that he's a regular on. But certainly you see him all over the place as an actor. And he knocked off this movie, a decent little movie, about an Iraq war veteran uh, with uh, suffering from PTSD. We spend a little time with him in Iraq, so we have some of those scenes, him, uh, his troops, Amari, Hart, Amari Hartwick, and a few other folks, and we see, what we, sometimes we flash back to that, but mostly, we're, we're with him on this road trip, a sort of motorcycle road trip across the country, because he's going to see if he can reconcile with his young son, and his, uh, and, and, well, his young son, anyway, mm. uh, his relationships and whatnot. Um, there's, there's a neat thing going on in the movie, which uh, maybe I'm giving something away here a little bit, but, it, but you figure it out fairly quickly, <laughs> is, is that he's constantly talking with uh, Omari Hardwick yeah. um, uh, in, in this film. And it doesn't take you long to figure out that Omari's dead yeah. and died in the war. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that, and, and, you, and, and you, you, you look at this, and you see this soldier talking to this guy, and you see him talking to a guy, and then uh, when you think about seeing soldiers on the street, you know, ex-vets on the street talking to people, it kind of puts in your head, you know, who they might be talking to. Maybe they're talking to some of the folks that uh, that didn't make it home, and and that's a thing that he's playing with here uh, in, in this movie, and and it's it's actually a decent movie, kind of. Kind of, uh, kind of touching, kind of moving, kind of funny. Not the greatest movie in the world, but Max did. A, he acquitted himself well as yeah. a first-time director. I'll put it that way. Uh, a few bonus features, cast interviews uh, with uh, Max and Omari and Lily Rabe and Gary Sinise and Robert Patrick, and some of the other notable actors that are in this movie. Uh, the Clove Hitch Killer didn't didn't really get a theatrical release per se. This is from uh, the Scream Factory line of Shout Factory. It was an IFC midnight release in uh, in whatever theatrical release it may have received. I don't remember it being in theaters, but I don't either. Regardless, basically a serial killer movie, kind of a horror thriller uh, thing with uh, Dylan McDermott showing up again, but doing a bit of an interesting twist, playing. The uh, this all takes place in the South, uh, in Kentucky, and um, the uh, Tyler Burnside is uh, plays a guy who you know is just wonderful guy in the community, and uh, Dylan McDermott is his dad. And ten years ago, there was a horrible, horrible bunch of murders, still unsolved. The guy was called the Clove Hitch Killer, and Charlie starts to su- uh, suspect at one point when some clues emerge that his dad, the wonderful Dylan McDermott, might be the Clove Hitch Killer. And uh, might be getting ready to start killing again. What do you do? Samantha Mathis also shows up in this and is perfectly fine. Um, the it, it's not really above and beyond anything else in this genre. Uh, Christopher Ford wrote it. Duncan Skiles directed, and they pretty much go by the numbers for this kind of thing. It's just kind of nice to see Dylan McDermott do something a little bit different. He's older now. He can do a few more character oriented uh, oriented things. And uh, that's pretty much it. It's on Blu-ray and uh, comes only with a featurette and a trailer. Oh, interesting. Uh, on Blu-ray here, The Happy Prince, Rupert Everett uh, wrote and directed this movie. Rupert Everett uh, about yeah. Oscar Wilde. The last mm-hmm. days of Oscar Wilde yeah. is kind of a speculative, uh, cheap Parisian hotel. Uh, Oscar lies on his deathbed and all of the memories of his life sort of come yeah. flooding back. And, uh, and he has a sort of conversation with his past. It's sort of interesting. Interesting that Rupert Everett would do it. He played Oscar um, uh, some years ago. When did he? Uh, well, he, no. He was in. He, he, he was, was in The he was, Importance uh, the, of Being Earnest. That's it. That's yes, what he was. He was in, in the importance of being earnest. An Oscar yes. Wilde play. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, a nice, a nice connection there. Uh, Colin Firth, 
uh, Edwin Thomas, Tom Wilkinson, and Emily Watson in this movie. Yeah, I prefer. I wish it would have done better. I wish it did too. It was it was good. I I thought Wild, the movie that starred Stephen Fry. Ah, starred Stephen. Yeah, yeah that's what Stephen. I, I thought that was better. Mm. Uh, that got into you know Bo, his relationship to Bosey and all of the the Doom relationship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, but the that real, was a bigger that was a bigger story. It was a bigger story. This is uh, this is very focused, but it's good. It is good, and they they are complementary films. You don't have to pick one or the other. Mm, Oscar Wilde, well, interesting figure once the most famous man in London and then you know the public that loved him yep. took him out That's but then it. again he was cav- kind of cavalier about that affair he was a little too cavalier yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah the world had not the world was not as uh, as libertine as he thought that it yeah. that he was able to make it be yeah yeah certainly not Mark Rollberg and Rose Byrne and Instant Family um, this was this came out for a quick 30 seconds and went away yeah, uh, and I, I don't know. It, it struck me as a weird combination, um, Roseburn and, and Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, that, that's not yeah. a comedy team. No. What is that? That's, that's not a comedy team, right? Uh, doesn't make sense. Anyway, it, 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 you know, Mark, Mark Wahlberg is just making a little bit too. I mean, he's trying to do. Um, Oh, who who else did this? He's trying to do that. That do it's what Schwarzenegger did. Yeah, right? yeah. He's trying to do the, cop. The, the comedies mm-hmm. and then the action. And things. then the he's action. Trying, thing. He's trying to balance that out. So he's giving you a little bit of each. And um, well, so he's got some place to go. Um, you know, after uh, after he can't run around with that gun anymore. Yeah, but he's he's got to be more selective with the comedies. Yeah, he really does. Yeah, well, that stuff with Will Ferrell. I, 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 and then he did the. Um, yeah, that was those. He did two of those, right? Will Ferrell, where they were the yeah the, the, stepdads, the stepdads and um, oh, yeah. and more stepdads or whatever it was called, stepdads too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh well, anyway, uh, two Blu-rays in this thing. One includes the feature film, the other includes some special features, uh, including some deleted scenes and extended scenes and a gag reel and that kind of stuff. All right, I'm gonna hit through some uh, music now. Okay. Actually, a couple of couple other things I'll hit real real quickly first. You know, the uh, the ongoing conflict in Syria is a is a bit of a big deal. Continues to be. Uh, continues to affect the world in ways that the world I don't think ever imagined that it would. It went on a whole lot longer and uh, than anybody ever dreamed. And uh, we have two films here, two documentaries that uh, deal with that. As I think I may have mentioned on this, I was at a I was at a refugee camp about uh, eighteen months ago mm-hmm. in Jordan, working uh, doing a filmmaking boot camp with some uh, some Syrian teenagers, and it was extraordinary. And there's a lot of talent there that will someday have great stories and great tools to tell them. And so it's worth uh, mentioning both of these films. The first one is from Kino Lorber. It's called Little Gandhi. Uh, and this was Syria's official submission for the uh, 90th Academy Awards last year. And uh, it was not selected, but it is a, it is a very, very good film. And uh, it, it uh, basically focuses on Giat Matar, who became known by the moniker Little Gandhi um, as as a peace activist, mm. and um, uh, it, it's you know his what he does uh, in in sort of trying to win peace for his people is rather extraordinary and definitely earns the the moniker. Uh, this is a um, this is a, a you can tell this was a very difficult film to make and definitely paves the way for others to come. One of which. Uh, is the film that was nominated for an Academy Award this year, and uh, that's a film by Talal Derki. This is also from Kino Lorber, and it's called Of Fathers and Sons. Yeah. Now, as you know, uh, Free Solo won the documentary Oscar. Free Solo was kind of expected to. That almost never happened. Is yeah. that the film that goes it's, into that? It's, it's my least favorite of those movies. It is mine, too. That um, was amazing, though. Uh, of Fathers and Sons, this, I should say. Fathers and Sons is... is this is And this, this is extraordinary, because... 
what uh, Talal Derki does, Talal Derki is a is Syrian and goes back to Syria, goes into war-torn Syria, back to his village, finds a jihadi family and wins their trust to the point where he is able to bring documentary cameras in and uh, capture the their commitment to jihadi philosophy, mm. their commitment to sacrificing themselves to kill infidels. And to how that is transmitted to from their one children, generation from one generation to the other. To the That's next. it. And it is, it is chilling, and it is tragic, and it is superb documentary filmmaking. And uh, you, 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 just, you sort of can't believe what he sacrificed and what he risked in order to make this film. It is really, really breathtaking. It is well worth seeing. So uh, I'm going to recommend both of these, Little Gandhi and Of Fathers and Sons, both from Kino Lorber. Really, really well worth checking out. Mm. Um, so let me let me blow through a bunch of music here. We got a lot, of, a lot of great stuff from Naxos again. And uh, for those who want to bone up and 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 bone up on and beef up their uh, their uh, classical music on Blu-ray library, you have got really just tons to choose from here. So let me go through this stuff as as briskly but as effectively as I can. Uh, two Rossini operas on one Opus Arte Blu-ray set, uh, La Cenet. Cenerentola, uh, directed by Sir Peter Hall, the father of Rebecca Hall, the actress, mm. and then uh, the Barber of Seville, Il Barbiere di Sevilla, with uh, directed by Annabelle Arden. Um, I have to be honest; I cannot watch any part of any staging of the Barber of Seville without thinking of Bugs Bunny. <laughs> I can't figaro, do it. Figaro, figaro. I can't do it. I can't do it. That's what. It, that's I, what that came to me. I'm sorry. I, I can't I, do it. The the Rabbit of Seville just lives in my head. But uh, still, Rossini, one of the great all time composers and uh, and writers of uh, of operas. So you know, you, you can't go wrong if you you can put Bugs Bunny out of your head. Uh, there's a really fascinating film here uh, by a filmmaker named Bruno Monsengen called The Indomitable Bow, and it's all about uh, famed cellist and conductor uh, Mstislav Rostropovich, otherwise known just as Rostropovich, because too many consonants in some of those, uh, those Slavic names that make it really hard for people who, who are uh, not Slavic to get, get tongue-tied trying to pronounce it. Anyway, uh, you learn a lot about Rostropovich here. There are, there's archival material and concert footage and interviews, and it's really, really quite, uh, quite fascinating. Uh, that'll, that, that's on uh, DVD only. Uh, also from Naxos, only on DVD, is Leonor, a wonderful opera. Uh, I don't know why it's not on Blu-ray necessarily, but it's, uh, this is a, an opera by Jean-Nicolas Bouilly, somebody I've never heard of before. Uh, also known as the uh, the conjugal love, and uh, really kind of a this is quite a nice staging. Uh, not sure that I followed the story quite so well, but uh, it, it's some it's always nice to discover you know a, a great opera. We also have Onegin uh, with the Stuttgart Ballet on Blu-ray. That is l really beautiful, uh, very nice staging. Uh, great story, by the way, if you ever saw the, the non-ballet movie starring Ray Fiennes, directed by his sister Sophie Fiennes. Really, really good. Uh, a 50-year anniversary concert, the Vienna Orchestra, uh, the Vienna Johann Strauss Orchestra, doing all kinds of uh, just wonderful tributes to the Strauss family, specifically Johann Strauss. On the uh, the fiftieth the um, not fiftieth the uh, the fiftieth anniversary of the orchestra itself, 
Um, really, really, that's a, that's a lovely concert. We have a uh, Leonard Bernstein celebration with the Royal Opera House and the Royal Ballet. Uh, that's, a, a, you know, Leonard Bernstein's going to be all the big deal now because, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. Bradley Cooper is doing the uh, Bernstein yeah. biopic. Yeah. Uh, Albenberg's Wozzeck, W-O-Z-Z-E-C-K, with the Chorus of Dutch National Opera and the Netherlands Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, that is also solid. We also have Bernstein at 100, the centennial celebration at Tanglewood, which is terrific. This is the Boston Symphony Orchestra, John Williams, tons and tons of other uh, soloists and, and guest stars, um, all doing a, a, just a big, huge, bang-up tribute to Leonard Bernstein, arguably the, uh, the most spectacular and the most flamboyant American uh, conductor in history. And uh, this honors not only his performances, but his own, his music, his compositions. No, and it winds up, you know, all wraps up with somewhere from uh, West Side Story. It's just perfect. Interesting. I, I think I I, I, Andrew Previn just died the other day, and, and, yeah. and, and they, they, they were like the one-two. Yeah. People, a lot of people said that Andre was in competition with yeah. Lenny. I don't think that's what was nah, going on exactly. They loved each other. Yeah. They were. They loved yeah. each other. By the way, uh, a friend of mine posted online, and it's the funniest thing I've ever seen. There was a there was a a uh, a show a Morecam and Wise show in I guess the late sixties early seventies where Andre Previn was a guest on on Morecam and Wise. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't know Morecam and Wise, one of the all time great British comedy mm -hmm. duos, hysterical stuff, especially in the late sixties early seventies. These guys were just amazing and so incredibly funny. This the shtick that I mean, Andre Previn is doing the best he can to keep up with them, but it is so funny. It is so mm -hmm. beyond funny because. Because Ernie Wise keeps calling him Andre Preview, <laughs> and in addition to all the other shtick going on, you know, Morcam playing piano, and it just it goes, and they've got an orchestra, and it's ridiculous. But by the sixteenth time that he said Andre Preview, I was having a seizure. <laughs> he, he, he just did it over and over, and I couldn't stop laughing. And Andre could jump. not stop laughing. Uh, we have great ballets from the Bolshoi Volume Two, uh, with uh, stuff from Swan Lake, La Bayadere. Marco Spada, The Golden Age. Uh, this is from Bel Air Classique. Um, and then we've got, let's see what else we've got here. Joseph Haydn, uh, Die Schopfung, The Creation. Uh, this is the, kind of a bit of a weird staging um, of an oratorio in three parts that uh, I can't imagine really looked like this when it was originally written. It's very kind of... Um, I don't know. It felt. It feels very kind of science fictiony. It's kind of kind of bizarre. But anyway, um, didn't really follow it narratively. But that's okay. It's Haydn's music, and it's great. Uh, William Shakespeare's Coriolanus uh, from Opus Arte, which is a this is a really really interesting take on it. Uh, all it's come. It's sort of not completely current present day, but it's very twentieth century. So it kind of situates it somewhere between like 1920 and maybe the 1960s uh and it's it's the story of you know a a roman soldier and uh deals with you know all of the uh, the the issues in roman society at the time not one of shakespeare's best plays but certainly uh an interesting one to sort of play with in some of these uh in some of these interesting you know updating ways so coriolanus from the royal shakespeare company uh, the United States Marine Band doing masterpieces for symphonic band. Uh, they have uh, they're beginning to release a few of these. These are these are perfectly fine if you just want to listen to stuff that the United States Marine Band plays. It's kind of all the same stuff. It's all sort of very uh, you know it's it's military repertoire. The St. Thomas Choir of Leipzig 
uh, does the St. Matthew Passion for, uh, by Johann Sebastian Bach and the Mass in B minor from Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, this is a three Blu-ray collection, which also includes a year in the life of the St. Thomas Boys Choir of Leipzig. And it is uh, strictly for people who, are, who love boys choir music, which my wife doesn't. She mm. thinks it sounds creepy. Uh, which it kind of does, but, you know, it's okay. It's because your voices haven't changed yet. <laughs> it's sort of true. Uh, and uh, let's see, we got the last two regular Blu-rays here, Verdi's uh, opera Il Lombarda, not exactly one of the most well-known, but this is from the Teatro Regi Reggio of Torino, and uh, it's lovely music, uh, pretty good staging. And then lastly, we have the uh, the Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's Marriage of Figaro, uh, in a fascinating staging. I say fascinating because it's a little bit um, it's 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 you know it's a 20th century interpretation, kind of 1930s uh, styling by the Staatsoper uh, Unter den Linden. And this is obvious. I don't know what German city that comes from, but uh, in any case, it, the music is well served. Uh, but the staging of it is a little bit unusual. 20th century for Marriage of Figaro is a little bit more than I can necessarily take. Uh, amazing, 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 through the roof amazing is the 4K Ultra HD of uh, Richard Wagner's The Valkyrie. Uh, this is actually shot in 4K Ultra HD, released in 4K Ultra HD uh, as part of the, uh, the uh, 50th anniversary Salzburg Festival in 2017. And it is gorgeous to look at. It is an enormous stage. It is really, really totally worthy of all of the, the Wagnerian excess that you expect. Uh, really, really, really top-notch. This is something you would, you would definitely put on, unlike Green Book, mm. to show off all of the 4K spectacle of your, of your system. And then lastly, we've got Soulfire Live, Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul, uh, which is, you know, just a whole lot of great soul. And... Uh, it's there's a you know there's, there are bonus tracks and you know 37 regular tracks and uh, a whole bunch of stuff uh, from the you know the Cavern Club. Uh, if this is your vibe, you're, you'll you'll thoroughly enjoy it. If you have no idea who Little Steven or the Disciples of Soul are, mm -hmm. then don't bother. And then lastly uh, is Band versus Brand, which is this really interesting documentary uh, that looks at the music business and how. Um, uh, how the how the how brands are overwhelming the music, how the marketing is sort of taking the joy out of it for a lot of these people, and they really talk to an awful lot of interesting people. They talk to you know a lot of uh, a lot of people from from mainly heavy metal people, yeah, and uh, from Megadeth and uh, you know Great White and uh, Slayer, and it's it's there, there's some interesting insights here. So um, you know if you're in the music business or want to be in the music business, you might want to take a look at this because it's it, it's changing in Big, huge waves. Big, big, huge waves. There's nothing like it used to be. I got a little television over here. Shall I? Yeah, let's do it. Um, this is interesting. I actually remember this movie. This is a 1996 movie about a 1992 event, The Siege at Ruby Ridge, which was in 1992. Randy Weaver, uh, some white nationalist, uh, white separatist sort of guy and his family at Ruby Ridge. Uh, some um, federal agents went out to arrest him on some gun charges because he had been selling guns illegally. Uh, and he refused to surrender, and everything went bad. And 11 days later, uh, his wife, his son, and his dog are dead, and one federal agent was dead. Yeesh, I remember that. Uh, I like it was yesterday. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, interesting. Who's in this movie? Laura Dern, Randy Quaid. Randy Quaid. That was the same Weaver. year as the L.A. riots, by yeah, the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
uh, my god, I was born in uh, yeah. 1992. Um, Kirsten Dunst as as the daughter in this yeah. movie. So you know, a, a, a interesting cast here. This movie. Uh, more or less uh, sides with the Weavers and yeah. the sort of context of what happened. Now, he, in fact, served 18 months in prison on that, yeah, ori- on that original gun charge. Right. And I don't know. I, this is what I've always thought about that. Um, he, he was selling guns illegally. Uh, the authorities went to arrest him. He refused to be arrested. Uh, things went south. I don't know exactly what was supposed to happen. Were they supposed to leave him there with, with the guns? You <laughs> that's know, a good question. Uh, you know, and, and because that's a, and, and then of course uh, some uh, what maybe two or three years ago, kind of the same thing happened again. Yeah. Uh, over here, what is it? Not the Standing Rock people, but those people out there oh, in Arizona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so I don't know. I don't, yeah, just I don't know. These things uh, we look at this anyway. Joe Don Baker and Diane Ladd also in the movie. Uh, Fear of the Walking Dead. Believe it or not, uh, this is the fourth complete season of Fear of the Walking Dead. Fear of the Walking Dead has been around for yeah. four, and it has a new season coming up in 2019. Man, those Walking it's, Dead people, that this is an industry. <laughs> it is, I never would have imagined that zombies yeah. could have this kind of shelf life. I love the ice cream truck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they I, have the, the Mexican ice cream truck <laughs> out the window back there. Yeah, right? I mean, it's, it's, you know, you go back to when they first showed up, when we first got our Walking Dead stuff back in the 1950s and mm-hmm. 60s. I can't, I just can't believe that it's lasted this long. It's a, it's a wild it's thing. It's amazing. Uh, this one is set in Los Angeles. The other one, of course, was sort of set in uh, Atlanta, yeah. if I'm not yeah. mistaken. This is yeah. set in Los Angeles. More or less about two families as they sort of try to deal with the whole, yeah. all the dead people walking around. Uh, <laughs> special features include some audio commentaries there. Perry Como, dude, I, I must I must admit that I grew up watching those Perry Como specials uh, through the late 60s and early 70s, and, um, and and I always loved those Perry Como specials. Now, I never once purchased a Perry Como record, but I, I, you, you came to lo- sort of like know his music by simply watching those specials, and, uh, and, and, and sometimes they would be really good. Now, this particular thing here, Perry Como's Music Hall, is an amalgamation of a few things that he did when he was doing some specials in the late 50s and late 60s and early 70s, but mostly late 60s in New York, uh, out of the out of the music hall there. What's neat about this is not just the Perry Como stuff. That's all fan, fine, but you run into George Goble, you run into uh, Carol Burnett, you run into Flip Wilson. That's great. And you run into a ridiculously young George Carlin. No kidding. Yeah, in these specials. Before so that's, he that's, looked like a hippie. Yeah, exactly. When, he was, uh, when he was still wearing the little suits yeah, with the yeah, tie, with the yeah, neckties. Nancy yeah. Wilson and some great music, too. But I love all the old school comedians. Oh, and I love that it says here, in color. <laughs> because that would have been a big deal. It was. Back I remember that right movie. before every Batman episode. Yeah, it was great. Got four here from MHZ. Some really, really great uh, European uh, and foreign drama. This is Acquitted, seasons Mm. one and two, a Norwegian drama. Now, uh, my sister-in-law lives in Norway. Uh, She's a librarian there and uh, has never heard of this show. So I have to, (laughs) well, you know, there are only a few million people in Norway. and You'd think think they'd all have heard of all the, yeah. I guess, but I guess they're all watching Netflix or something. Anyway, uh, this is really, really good. The uh, this was actually seen more most widely in um, uh, in Sweden, but uh, you know what? Uh, like half a million people in Norway uh, watched this thing, and it was the highest rated drama premiere in the history of that Norwegian channel. So somebody mm. in Norway is watching it, yeah. and a lot of people in Sweden are watching it. Uh, it's really really interesting. It's about a guy 
who was uh, accused and acquitted of murdering his uh, his his girlfriend. Yeah, when uh, he was young, when he was younger. Yeah, and then years, and then he goes and he leaves town. You know, spits out, splits out of Norway, works in Asia, becomes a big big time big shot businessman, and then comes back to Norway at a certain point for various reasons, and uh, everything old is new again. And uh, it's it's uh, it's 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 interesting. You know, can you ever go home again? Sure, but you're going to go home to a whole lot of baggage, and uh, it's really, really a very smart show. I could see them remaking this in a heartbeat here, mm. and as good as season one is, season two is even better. It gets deeper and darker, and part of this, I was thinking, you know what? They're kind of following a trajectory a little bit similar to Ozark. Oh. It has kind of an Ozark vibe to it, you know? Mm. The the guy who, because when he was in Asia, he was a big shot. Now he comes back, small town, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Jason Bateman, big city, small town. Mm-hmm. I know it's kind of a reach, but it has kind of a similar... You know, symbolism of the small town as some kind of a, a purgatory for, yeah. for these people who have sins to atone for. Yeah. Anyway, very, very good. Uh, and then um, Those Who Kill is uh, a is a really, really intense Danish series, a Danish uh, cop show uh, that it's all about basically profiling. And uh, it's pretty dark and pretty kind of, you know, like the movie Seven. Uh, it, it gets into that... Uh, you know, the Sounds of the Lambs seven kind of vibe. It's very, very intense. It's very, very dark. Uh, I don't know what it is about the Danes. They they have no trouble going really super, super dark. But um, it's really sharp, really, really sharp stuff. And uh, directed by the director who did the killing. And it's uh, you, you, it's you, you got to have a, st- a stern constitution for this one. And then lastly is uh, the one the Scandinavian country we haven't yet talked about. Spring Tide from Sweden. Uh, this is on three DVDs, about seven hours worth, and this is even darker, believe it or not, than the uh, than the stuff in the uh, in Those Who Kill. Uh, this takes place in 1990, and on, on this uh, island, this this remote Swedish island, where there's this horrible, horrible murder, and uh, you know the the investigation of the murder obviously uh, overturns all kinds of other discoveries that are just uh, you know. What the hell is up with the Swedes, dude? I don't know, man. I mean, I mean they go dark. I mean, those, um, oh. Uh, the, it's cold. Yeah, I guess it's the cold. <laughs> you know, it's those dragon tattoo it's, books and movies. I, I raised I raised that question once with uh, with Cronenberg uh, at a press conference where I, and I was kind of prepping for this piece I did for the LA Times years ago on the on the uh, the Canadian New Wave. Mm. And, there, and, and, and I was saying, you know, like, there's so many dark themes, like you and Denis Arcand and... Uh, and Adam McGoyan, and I went right down the list, like all the the the, the Canadian filmmakers making all these dark, brooding, obsessive, yeah. unconventional movies. And uh, Cronenberg was hilarious. He he just kind of smiled, and he just goes, "It's cold." <laughs> that was the, that was his answer. And it, and it was true. And I got a huge laugh. It didn't really answer my question, but it was funny. Uh, uh, dude, I cannot believe I missed this series. When you first got here, I was watching yeah. Star Trek Discovery because I'm you know I'm trying to put together sure. my entire Star Trek universe and, yeah. and see if it all sort of gels. And uh, and then you you handed me this. I'm like Krypton, the complete first season because there are two. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a series uh, set on Krypton. It's it's, it's, it's like Smallville. It's like it, it, and apparently it's, it's a, um, a prequel to Smallville. A prequel, exactly. Yeah. It's, he's playing he's playing uh, um, Superman's grandfather. Yeah. Uh, there is some time travel involved. Yeah. So and he, and apparently he has to do something. Did he has to yeah. make a choice between whether or not he's going to let Krypton be this. 
destroyed because yeah. if he doesn't allow Krypton to be destroyed, then it'll completely yeah. change the future. I mean, uh, so anyway, but I just completely missed a, a, a series. Dude, there's too much television. There is, I, I agree. Peak television is too much television right now. Yeah. They what they what they obviously want to do with this is do the same thing that they did with Gotham, which mm. I don't think was quite so great. But uh, I kind of felt like they did that already with Smallville. Yeah, me too. I mean, what, what? I mean, I get it. This is we're going all the way back to uh, whatever. Anyway, yeah. um, Krypton, the first complete season, second uh, season will be out soon, and pretty soon you're going to see some kind of like a, a period series called Vulcan, which is a story <laughs> of like ancient Vulcan, right? Vulcans riding horses or whatever they're. Uh, I've been watching Discovery. You're not as far off as you think. I know. Uh, the Simple Heist series one, turning to crime to even the score. So this is a uh, this is an <laughs> this is a really interesting series. I uh, I'd like to laugh a lot more at it than uh, than I do, but it, and it is funny. It's very funny. I just wish it were a little bit funnier. I kind of feel guilty about uh, laughing at any of it. Um, this is a Swedish series. This is from uh, RLJ, and uh, it's six episodes that focus primarily on these two middle-aged to kind of older women. Uh, who are not happy with where their lives are in the twilight years, and they uh, resort to crime as a way to kind of get payback against uh, you know their their miserable failed uh, lives that pass them by. And um, there's a lot of fun in it, but there's also a lot of darkness. And in being Swedish you kind of lose track sometimes of when you're supposed to laugh and when you shouldn't be laughing. And, and sometimes they, they, they get you going, and then they'll pull something out that makes you feel guilty for having laughed. Uh, it's an unusual series, but it is it apparently has a following. The Simple Heist, Series 1. Mm. When Calls to Heart is a Canadian series. When Calls to Heart is the greatest uh, blessing, uh, which is about this wealthy woman uh, from a wealth, wealthy Eastern Canadian family who goes out to the coast, coal mining town, to teach, to become a teacher, and set at the turn of the last century. Uh, a perfectly uninteresting show, but for one thing, Lori Laughlin is in it. Uh, love Lori Laughlin. I just love Lori Laughlin. I mean, Aunt, yeah, whatever her name was on that show with the with the twins and and all that kind of stuff. I just was always bananas about her. And she's on this Hallmark uh, Hall of Fame Channel series, which is inspired uh, by a novel of the same name. So you know, um, uh, I'm sure it's all very sweet. Uh, it, uh, produced by Michael Landon Jr. Michael Landon, of course, being uh, uh, well, Little House on the Prairie, and uh, he, what was that angel that Michael Landon played? Um, oh yeah, uh, uh, touch. Uh, no, no, he wasn't touched by an angel. He's no, the other the angel. Highway to Heaven. Highway to Heaven. Yeah, uh, he was on for years. When I first got to town. I, I, I had called to run into Michael Landon. This is like 1990 at the Four Seasons Hotel. Hmm. And, and I looked at him and somehow instinctively, uh, like uh, without uh, control of my own voice, I looked at him and said, Little Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me and smiled, walked over, always, shook my head. Always be little Joe to yeah, some yeah, of because he was left-handed. You know, he was yeah. a South Park, just like yeah. you. Anyway, uh, this is kind of neat if you if you like this kind of thing. Uh, then uh, real quickly here, we got Ancient Aliens season eleven. Look, there, volume two, season eleven, <laughs> volume two. Look, honestly. If you've seen Ancient Aliens, you know what this is. Mm -hmm. Season eleven, volume two. I, I got nothing to add, really. Mm, no. I, it it's just uh, they even Eric Von Daniken at this point is saying enough, guys. Yeah, really yeah, enough. Yeah, Time out. Yeah. Enough. Um, and uh, dogs on the job, seven part documentary series. This is from, I love uh, that. Milk. From Mill Creek, lots of fun. It's about working dogs. It's about all the dogs out there. I mean, you know, we have our dogs. We love our yeah, dogs. But great. there are breeds of dogs who know how to do stuff, and it's that's cool. what that documentary is about. 
and Pat Boone and family. Springtime and Easter specials. Gotta love the uh, the old Pat Boone specials. Lots of fun. Um, uh, so with that, we're going to now dovetail into an interview, wrap the show out with an interview with uh, my very, very good friend, Farrell Hirsch. I uh, have been friends with Farrell for a very long time. We get into it in the interview. Farrell's got a new book out. Mm. And uh, you got to go check out the book. It is, it's an awful lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's all about his brushes, with his, his embarrassing and poignant brushes with celebrity <laughs> over the course of his career as a writer, as a radio producer, and all the many things that he's done as a playwright. Uh, anyway, Farrell's one of the most talented people uh, that I've ever known, and I'm proud to know him. So here is my interview with author Farrell Hirsch. Uh, one of the great privileges of this job is when I get to interview people that I actually know and people that I respect. And uh, this is a thrill. We are talking to my very good and longtime friend, Farrell Hirsch, uh, a longtime playwright, writer, producer, and countless other things, a hyphenate par excellence, who recently wrote What I Learned from 50 Celebrities by Screwing Up in Front of Them. Um, I, I have to point out, when Farrell and I first met, we were, we were both involved with a, a small publication uh, that had been started by uh, David Latt, who, of course, now runs uh, the asylum and, and, uh, and Sharknado's everything. And he, you went on to write some wonderful plays, which have been performed nationally. You wrote for television. I remember you said one of the wisest things, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop talking here and let you pipe in. You said one of the wisest things that has directed my life ever since. When you were writing, I think you had written something Wait, for the I, new. Did I say get off of Facebook? It's no good for you. <laughs> no, you said you would. I think you had just written a monster, a new monsters episode. Yeah. For that that John Shuck monsters uh, reboot, and um, I, I was so impressed at, at your work ethic, getting up and just hitting the computer and just writing and writing and not sort of waiting for the muse to speak to you. And I said, you are such a hard worker. And you said to me. No, there are guys who wake up every morning and go into a coal mine. Those guys are hard workers. This is easy. Yeah. And I've never forgotten that. So thank you. Oh, no, no, you're welcome. You know, that comes from one of the jobs I had in college was I worked for the county. I, did, I wasn't a kid who had enough money. I couldn't get back to college unless I made some money over the summer. And I, my first summer was on the hot roads of, of steamy humid roads in New York and they were tarring the roads and there was big giant rollers and I was the guy behind it and I would come home I, I you know I'd, I'd come home looking like I was in blackface and, and, and just it was horrible and the second summer I worked my way up to being a garbage man for the parks department and at 5.30 in the morning I'd get up and they'd have these wire mesh garbage cans and I'd pick it up over my head to dump it and yesterday's half-eaten chicken bones would fall on my face and warm orange soda. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I had to get up and write today. Right. Yeah. No, it's I've never forgotten that. So I, I, I've never complained about anything that I do in this business since. And uh, and I, I've recited those words with attribution many, many times. So... Let's let's get into the book. Um, okay. Talk for a second about. I mean, this is this is one of those wonderful self-deprecating, revealing uh, books that is a joy to read and a joy to reread. And I've already read it to a bunch of other people in excerpts, and everyone laughs and they all think it's wonderful. How? What? What? Uh, talk about the the genesis of the book, where it came from, and why. Well, there, there's there, you know there's two levels of that. One is I walked into the publisher's office and I said I want to write a memoir, and the publisher, wise woman, said to me. You're an idiot. The uh, nobody's going to buy 
your memoir. Nobody's going to read your memoir. You're, you're not famous. And I said, all right, what will they buy? And she said, a self-help book. Everybody buys self-help books. They can't help themselves. So I said, all right. And I went home and I turned the idea into a self-help book. And it became, you know, one of those things, the cliche is it writes itself. But if you see the structure of the book, it really is 50 individual stories about things from my life. And it turns out these are stories I've been telling at cocktail parties, sometimes for, for several decades. So... They are they are well honed. They're they're the ones I know can grab an audience because I've watched it and I've said it and I know how to tweak the story without without losing the truth and without losing the meaning. But the beauty of turning it into a self help book, the idea of the publisher was that now there's a moral at the end of the story instead of me just saying, oh yeah, I I was the idiot who told Lisa Cujo not to go on Friends or <laughs> or Frank Sinatra sued me or. Oh, I underestimated Charlton Heston. I, I tell the story, and then I, and then you know, and then I explore. I spent at least a couple of paragraphs, maybe a page or two, exploring what that meant and why. So it gave the book a little more meaning, I think. So, I mean, the table of contents is one of the most wonderful things I've ever seen. Uh, it's just it is it is names of celebrities, but then there are things in here that are a little bit that make you stop and kind of trip for a moment. So it's great. Lisa Kudrow is the first one. Yeah. Hugh Hefner, Leonard Nimoy, Carol Burnett, Michael Eisner, Jenna Jameson is a great yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, Lance Bass. I mean, Donald Trump right there. Chapter 28. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Trump, Trump's an interesting story. It turns out that his family and my family have a history together going back generations. Uh, the president's father, Fred C. Trump, uh, worked with my paternal grandfather, uh, in the building industry in New York, they were they were both uh, uh, what would say competitors, and sometimes they were sort of half partners on things, and so they knew each other well. And my grandfather used to tell me so before. Trust me, anybody listening to this, before you ever heard of Donald Trump, before The Apprentice, before The Art of the Deal, before he was fixing the Woolman Rink at, at Rockefeller Center, in my my family, we were aware of the Trump family, and. And my grandfather used to say, "Ugh, there's one, there's one guy I hate. He's the worst." He said, "And and and who is this?" And he would say, "Fred Trump. He's the worst." And all the things that my grandfather used, the words, the the, the way he described Fred Trump, was almost exactly the way I sometimes see the president of the United States on television, or the way he treats people. This is not. I'm not talking policy here, but I. I would think most people could see that he's got a certain gruffness or insensitivity to his you persona. You could say that. And, and it turns out that that's multi-generational. That is so interesting. Um, talk, let's talk for a second. I mean, there, you know, again, I love that you put uh, Justin Bieber and Betty White back to back. That's a <laughs> great generational thing. Um, talk about some, some of these chapters that, that are the ones that are like Robert E. Lee and the 25 Celebrity Vaginas. Yeah, well, there's an interesting topic. So this is when I do a talk live. This is usually usually what I leave for the end because I think there's a really good message for America in that story. So uh, about two years ago, I became the CEO of something called the Muckenthaler Center in Orange County, California, and we we're an arts organization. We have art galleries and theaters. Where um, if I could ever trick you into it, we'll do a, a, a film series. Um, <laughs> 
uh, we do all kinds of things. And in the first season I was putting together, there were two two items we put on the on our annual calendar. One was a one man show, uh, Robert E. Lee, by a wonderful actor named Tom Tom Dugan, and and I he's performed it around the nation. It's an amazing show. I've seen it, and I and I've known him as long as I've known you, maybe longer. Um, um, and the other one was a production of the Vagina Monologues, uh, Eve Ensler play. And as soon as I said, "Oh, um, Robert E. Lee," people came and said, "Oh, no, no, you can't do Robert E. Lee. This is—it's impossible. You, you know, people will complain. They'll—they'll they'll say you're a—you're a Confederate, and then we're pro-slavery." I said, "What? Who—who who is pro-Confederate? That's not even a—that's not even a category in 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 2018." And. And then I had the same people saying, oh, no, vagina models, you don't understand, we're very conservative Orange County here. People, people who protest, you'll never be able to raise any money. They'll, they'll, and I said, what? This is a play that has moved a generation. It's, it's, it's a wonderful piece. And, 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 I, and I quickly noticed that not one person said they were offended. What I got was people who were just sort of offended secondhand and we're, everybody was afraid that everybody else was going to be offended, and it became this paralyzing force, which of course we just ignored and, and, and didn't get paralyzed. And in the end, the wonderful thing is there were absolutely no complaints at all about vagina monologues. Now, there probably were people who read the title and scoffed and didn't show up, but nobody refused to, to donate or, or drop their membership or complain. And on the Robert E. Lee show, there was literally one complaint. So I, I don't like to lie about these things, so I don't want to say zero. There was one guy who lived in the neighborhood, and I, I said, just come see it. I've seen the show. Trust me. This, it, it does not promote slavery. It does not promote the Confederacy. It doesn't promote racism. See the show. And, he, and to that guy's credit, he came and saw it. Now, he disagreed with me. <laughs> he still thought it was an, uh, um, an abomination that we put at the show. But that's one. That's one. And people have, a, I think the lesson there is that people have a much greater capacity to understand if you just let them. Don't, don't be afraid on other people's behalf. And I see, I see so much of that. You know, and, and some of this is poignant, too. Uh, it's not just all sort of self-deprecation and funny. It really is poignant. And, uh, you know, even though it has a funny title, the chapter, 10 Celebrities That Never Hit on My Wife, Yep. Um, I really like that. And it's it's a funny line, and you think, oh, that's great, let's check that out, because I know your wife as well. Um, yep. I read it, and I thought, you know, this is, this is there's really something poignant here. It's pulling the curtains back on people who might have a certain reputation or who might have a certain um, unearned or undeserved reputation and saying this is when they were, this is how they were, you know, this is what they're like when they're when they're decent or what you might not expect yep. of them. I thought that well, was really interesting. Well, well, thanks. You know, when I sat down to write the book, I, I did make myself a promise. Now, I ended up making exceptions to it, but I made myself a promise that I wasn't going to like, out anybody or tell horrible stories. I'm the fool. I play the fool in all these stories. So, because, I mean, I may only write one book in my life. It, you know, it took a half a century of stories to create this one. I don't know how much, I don't know if I have that much left in me. Um, and, and so I didn't, I, I, you know, if you got one thing to leave to the world, it shouldn't be negative, it shouldn't be angry, it shouldn't be degrading another person. And I, I've only made a couple of exceptions on that rule. Um, for instance, I, I told a story where uh, Bill Cosby was particularly rude and just really difficult to work with. But I, I, you know, I excuse myself because I say, is that 
oh, Bill Cosby was rude to me one day. Is that going to really make him look worse in anybody's eyes right now? <laughs> I, I, I don't think I'm hurting his reputation any. The And then there's also one, you know, celebrities that were nice to your daughter, which has yep. kind of the same feel to it. Yep. Um, the Let's talk for a second about the blind items. There are six stories in here that, where, that are anonymous, and you call yes. them blind items. And uh, they're all really, really good, and they're all interesting. And you naturally start to try to figure out who it is. That's just, I think, going to be everyone's instinct. Was yep. that a, was that, I mean, I get the sense that that was not necessarily a legal consideration. But that that's you just being a really decent person and saying this story is better if you don't know who it is. Yeah, well, I don't know if the story is better, but the world is better. Um, yeah. You know, I sat at a party one day with a guy who told me the story of he and his wife going to a swingers club. You know, uh, I don't know, a quarter of a century later, maybe that guy's a prominent politician in America. I don't want to hurt him, his career. Um, he's still married to that wife. I mean, here's the thing. He could have he could have been lying to me that day. It could have been a phase in their life, and they haven't been involved in it in 20 years. It might. It's so. Who it is just isn't necessarily relevant. Right. And I. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to hurt a guy's career or, or or his livelihood or his family. Even, maybe even if I knew he did something wrong, but I don't. You know. He did something I wouldn't have done, but but doesn't he didn't? It's it's if it's a I don't even want to say victimless crime. It's a victimless act. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite of all these chapters? Is there one that you that you really you're you're most fond of? Um, jeez, oh, it's it, it's probably whichever one pops into my head. I I'm really really partial to the Charlton Heston story mm -hmm. um, because it it there's kind of a majesty to it. And because um, the perception is, the perception would generally be that, say, my politics would lean towards the left, that it's not, in this one, it's not just me that plays the fool, it's an entire section of society, um, and, and, it and it works on two levels, because I misjudged the man, and then I misjudged how other people were judging him. I mean, I, do you want me to tell a little bit of that story? And, and... Uh, you know, I think I mean we'll let people discover it in the book. Okay. I think they'll okay. discover it in the book. It's because it is really, really good. And um, you know, I just it's what I what I want people to understand about this book is it's it's funny, it's poignant, but it is revealing, and not just about you, but about these people as well. It really gives you that thing that I think celebrities um, don't really have anymore, which is somebody to sort of be. Um, to give an honest third eye on who they are. And, you know, the publicists used to sort of be responsible for, for filtering that. But publicists have kind of gone by the wayside in the age of Twitter and let it all hang out. And social media sometimes is the enemy of a celebrity. Would you agree? Well, you know, I hate I'm – not, I'm not a big blame guy. So, <laughs> like, you know what? If, if you typed it in – and if you typed it into Twitter, yeah. it's not Twitter's fault. Yeah. Um, I, but I, I think the world is still finding its way on, on, on how to treat social media and how to express how, how do we express themselves. Because, I, I mean, I've lost friends for making jokes on social media. I, I made a joke one day, and I had a relative who didn't talk to me for two years. Oh, no. Because if something I thought was funny and they thought was 
a really horrible, degrading insult. Um, and, you know, that's, again, learning for me. It doesn't matter that I meant it was fun. You know, I, I, I thought it was humorous. If you think it out and you say to yourself, ooh, can that be read the wrong way? Maybe, yeah, maybe I, not maybe. I definitely shouldn't have put it up because it wasn't worth it. Uh, I love a good joke, but I, I also love people I love. So, I mean, I, uh, some of these other chapters here, Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, I thought yeah. was, is, is, a, is a great, it's a great name for a chapter for, for a whole litany of reasons. Uh, Cinderella. Hey, I, I'm not the only person who has those chapters in his life. <laughs> uh, Cinderella, chapter 44, which is, is terrific, too. Uh, Ryan Seacrest, you know, there's, there's just uh, so many good ones here. And, of course, you capped the whole thing off with Bruce Jenner, which I thought was great. Yeah, well, okay, I just want to tell you this, the Ryan Seacrest. So in that Ryan Seacrest story, there's a, there's part of it where he's in the back seat of a car with a girl, um, which might surprise people. But, <laughs> but, but I talked to that woman uh, like two weeks ago, and in fact, she has a podcast that she's invited me on, and she's all mad at me because she said, necking? We weren't necking. I don't know if you want me to say, I don't know how clean your podcast is. <laughs> well, so I, I, I would give you the PG version. She said, necking? We weren't necking. We were more active than that. <laughs> I said, I, I, fine, put that in your book. It's, it's not germane to the lesson I learned here. I don't, I'm not going to do that. And then she said to me, well, what about that time? Yeah, I can, I can say it here. She says, what about that time Gary Busey backed me up against the wall? I said, that's not my story to tell. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't learn anything from Gary Busey that day. And, you know, uh, chapter 41, Jesus versus Gandhi with an assist from L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, you know, that's – I, I, I just – how did you come up with some of the titles for some of these two? Oh, man. Well – you know, I, I, I really always meant to go back and make all of the titles more interesting, and the publisher said, no, nothing's more interesting than Lady Gaga. Nothing's more interesting than Justin Bieber. Nothing's more interesting than Hugh Hefner. Um, I, I don't know. Listen, you and I have been at this a long time, decades, yeah. and one of the things we do is write things and try to make them interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's just clear to me that if I... I don't know if I pit historical religious figures against themselves. There's interest in it. It's, <laughs> it's, I, I, don't give me too much credit for that. Well, but they're really great titles. You know, the, I mean, I just, I remember very well when we first met that the, the, some of those editorial meetings and you were coming up with ideas like a machine, you know, and your head works in a very particular way. Well, well it, it's funny you say it because I was so out of place there because that magazine was supposed to be helping to, teach people or it was for people who were sort of starting out in 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 the production field and and uh, i think david wanted interviews with more accomplished people and, and man i just wanted to kind of write fiction pieces and imagination pieces i it, it, but i also just wanted to keep busy so he, he was very gracious to to give me some latitude oh well, latitude i like that yeah <laughs> there you go. Well done. See, it's how your head works. Yeah. Uh, you know, my my favorite my favorite chapter here, I should say, is a name that isn't going to jump out at everybody, but it's uh, it's a really good story, and it's the the Alan's Weibel story, um, which oh. I think is, there's so much to learn from that. Um, it's a really really good one. 
Yeah, Alan was one of the original Saturday Night Live writers. Um, in fact, he's just, he has a sort of a gilded documentary that I saw on CNN uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's really good. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, I got the chance, you know, the, the easy version of the story, I won't give out punchlines, but I got the chance very early in my career to have Alan as a mentor, and I blew it off. I just, I, I just didn't understand how valuable that was. I thought maybe I was bothering him. Why, why would he want to be with me? I, why would why would the why would he be wanting to give me advice? I didn't really know him. I, I should have been a little greedier. I should have been a little more self-interested. I should have been, you know. On the other hand, I also should have been more open. And and and, and I, I don't know. And I got the chance. I, I I used to run radio stations for Sirius XM, which is how I accumulate a lot of these stories. And I had the chance to get him as a guest, and I had to beg my host because they had never heard him. I said, please, please have him come in. I must tell him this story and apologize to him. And, you know, and, and also I refuse to do it live on the air because, you know, you shouldn't use public airwaves to air your own crap. Well, Farrell, thank you for, for the book. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for just being in the world and giving so much to so many people, even if they may not necessarily know who the name on the on the script was, or on the play, or as the producer on the radio, or whatever the case may be, you're you've you've touched a lot of lives, and I highly recommend what I learned from 50 celebrities by screwing up in front of them, uh, by Farrell Hirsch, a gentleman and a scholar. Uh, Farrell, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Wade. It was great being here.